Good morning, welcome to the class on marriage, Sunday, June 9th, and let me pray for us as we get started. Lord, it's good to be together. Thank you for this day. We, we rise with hope and assurance of he who is the resurrection and the life, rules and controls all things. We worship you, Jesus. Thank you that you've called our relationships, marriage in particular, to mirror the wonder and glory of your love for your people. You do love us. Use this time to perfect that love in us and our relationships. Give us grace upon grace, lavish us with mercy and compassion, for we fail so easily. And we need you. We need you more than we know. And thank you that when you show up in relationships, they are, uh, they, they are undertaken the way that uh, you design and would please you. So help us grow and help us communicate well with one another. Open our hearts to your spirit. May he have his way. In Jesus' name, amen. We're finishing the handout at that front, and we're looking today at the question, what are you tempted, most tempted to change in your spouse? I have a couple questions for us to discuss and route to getting to the handout. One is, uh, what, what, the image of a, usually you end up marrying somebody that sort of suits an image of the person that you're looking to marry, right? As you're dating and you're constructing ideas in your mind, this is the type of person I'd like to be married to. My first question is, what factors shape that image of the person you think you're going to be most happily married to? Because very few of us choose someone we think, oh yeah, I'll be unhappily married to that person. We choose someone we think is going to give us joy and fulfillment and satisfaction, etc. So my question for you is, what are some of the factors that shape the image of the person you think you want to marry? Not a hard question. Did I do? Your upbringing, your history, I guess. Sure. Personal history, namely, and specifically, that would be whose marriage that you witnessed? Your parents. Your parents, and perhaps grandparents? I don't know. Aunts, uncles. Aunts, uncles, and how about input from your siblings? Let's suppose you were the youngest of so many, and you watch your brothers and sisters do life who are older than you. That, that a possibility? The way they thought about things? Most, I'm the youngest of three boys, so I'm obviously influenced by the way my older brothers did things. I spent 40 years trying to undo their influence. Not really. So, <laughs> all right, so your siblings, what else? Well, for, for good or worse, I think Hollywood. Hollywood, no doubt. <clears throat> what are some of the images we get from Hollywood? Thank you, Radu. seen a Hollywood configuration of marriage that was based on this. Okay, now that we know we're both great sinners, how are we going to manage sin? Never seen that in Hollywood. Completely missing. And therefore, by definition, there's a faulty understanding of what marriage is. Because ultimately, that's what marriage is. It's how you manage in your sin. Not ultimately, but if you can't do that, well, you won't have a good relationship. Okay, what else? Somebody besides Radu, he's stealing the show here today. Wait, did you move? I did. Okay. <laughs> what are some other... I, I operated. You operated? You got an upgrade. First class with Melissa. That's crazy. 
personal, person, your own personal interests, the okay. things that you like and enjoy. And okay. If you're a nature lover, um, probably think that would be an important quality and someone that you're going to spend the rest of your life with. They too like to be outdoors, you know, that, that kind of thing. All right, good. Personal interests. Your personality. So the kind of personality you think you want to be married to is a function of. I'm sorry. Sure. All right. Your own personality. Good. Some of your earlier dating relationships. Yeah, I think you'll learn a lot from your dating relationships. Very good, David. Thank you. Nate. This is similar to interest, but like shared life goals. Shared life goals, can you give uh, one or two examples? If you have someone that like wants to be in the ministry, you want to marry someone that also like wants to do that. Yes. Uh, I think one time I, I, there was a young lady in a youth, uh, uh, young adults fellowship that I led in Charlottesville who had a distinct call on her life. She wanted to be married to a, a pastor. I think, um, was it Susanna Wesley has like books on what it was like to be. Yeah, so good. Shared life goals. Anything else goes into this? How self-consciously do you think people are aware of these influences as they're thinking about the type of person they want to marry? Probably not so much. I mean, particularly the younger you are in your own personal life experience. And, and how uh, self-reflective and self-aware you are by nature in your personality. Rock? You did list physical attractiveness. Yeah. Isn't that something? It, it is. Physical attractiveness. I uh, do an exercise when I'm doing premier's counseling, and one of the first questions I ask is, why do you want to marry this person? And you know, we tease out all kinds of answers to that, and most times Christians are, are reluctant to say, because I'm attracted to them. So, um, so I said, was there anything else? You know, they're polite, I, they make me a better person, they're spiritual, anything else? Well, are you attracted to them? Yes. Well, that's not unspiritual. That's a good thing. Good. Okay, I'm going to ask another question just to sort of get us going here. Speaking of uh, uh, wanting to change the other person, how has marriage changed you? How has marriage changed you? Ooh, that's awfully personal. But you know, we're all Christians. No one's going to bark at you, jump down your throat, not least your spouse. I would say hopefully for the better, but that's not necessarily guaranteed. Hopefully for the better. Can you think of one way, Radu, that in marriage or Ruth has changed you for the better? personality took a slightly different, that's a personality thing, and because of Bob's influence, shaping your personality a little bit, or the way you 
go about doing life? Mm -hmm. Good. By his example, his encouragement? Mm -hmm. Good. Excellent example. Someone else? I think it exposed my personal idol. Okay. <clears throat> like a value system that I'm not aware of. I'm sorry, did you say value system you're not aware of? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Actually, where we're going to end the class today, and that is, by God's design, it's very often the case that you're going to marry someone with whom your idols clash. That's where we're going to end the class today. So that's a very good one. Thank you. Anything else? How has marriage changed you? How do you hope for marriage to change you? If you're single, you get to answer too. for another person, share goods, then kids come along, what enormous new levels of responsibility. Good one. It'll kind of either make you or break you there, right? And, and some people run from run from it. Melissa? Um, I think for me, marriage helped me take my focus off of myself so much and, and have more of a network focus, specifically for myself and then for my family. Good. So we're naturally focused on ourselves, and we get this other person in our life, and unless we're going to continue to be these ridiculously narcissistic, self-centered jerks, we've got to get our focus on the other person. Very good. Or it isn't love, right? What's love? It's a commitment to give your best to the other, even in the face of their worst, seeking to promote what is good for them. Got your focus on them. All right. How about one more question? Since are you feeling like uh, this is kind of personal today? Look, this is kind of a large, small group discussion. How about this question? Are you better off for being married to this person? Of course. Yes. Of course. Can you be specific? No. <laughs> are you better off? In what ways? I mean, in a sense, what you said here are reflect ways that you're better off spiritually. Any thoughts? Too personal? <laughs> Melissa? I think in, in one way, you have someone coming alongside you who, and if, if your goals are um, grounded in Christ, your, your goal is to help this person be more like Christ. Yeah. So, different than when you're single, you have a person that's coming right alongside you to to guide you in that way. Um, it may not always be that way, but hopefully that's our goal. So, like, right, you wrote down like, Good. Let me, just, let me just reiterate. God's design in, for your relationship is sanctification. Is as your sin is exposed by the other person, that's inevitably going to happen. This person is walking with you and helping you turn from sin to Jesus. It's a, it's a joint thing. So you should be sanctified as a result of your marriage, which is an enormously wonderful thing. And sanctified really in a unique way that 
that, um, that is different than being single your whole life. Nothing wrong with being single, but there's something unique God has designed about this relationship to expose sin, walk together, grow together, look to Christ together, avail yourselves of the means of grace together. Nate. This is along those lines, but you have someone who is going to be more honest with you than other people in giving you a reflection of what you're like. So with, with the blind spots thing, you may have a way of talking or a way of doing something that you know a lot of other people see, but your spouse is the one that's probably going to bring it up to you more than anybody else. That's right. So that means... That means um, you either despise that person for that, or you appreciate and love them for that. Right? And it means you've got to keep secrets. See, Janice knows me better than any of you do. Is that a good thing? Of course it is. But she doesn't tell you how awful I am. Which is also a good thing. Right? That's our secret. <laughs> That's so, it's supposed to be that way. I'll tell you as much as I can without publicly humiliating myself how bad I am, but she knows in a way that you don't, so you have to keep secrets. Good. Anything else, Janice? Is it also good to kind of stay within that context, uh, and this is part of our observation of, of others, that it's not good to be criticizing your spouse in front of other people, and we see that happen, and it's just, it's not beneficial. It's not beneficial to the people who hear it, and it's not beneficial to your spouse. Good. I'll give a hearty amen to that. And that's one of the things I encourage young couples uh, during premarriage counseling is, and that is just develop a policy that when you're with other people, <clears throat> you will not criticize your spouse. If you feel the need to, to call something out, then remove yourself from the room and do it that way. Or just, because what happens sometimes, like Christian small groups and covenant groups, young couples can get together and you start winging these little zingers about your spouse, even if it's in a joking way, but it really is fundamentally critical. I think that's wrong, except for uh, giving that person, unless you have a mutually agreed upon permission. It's okay. It's okay for you to do that in this setting, but without that permission, then it's something that's, your, your, uh, your goal should be to promote them, set forth them in the most positive light. Okay, those are some questions that just get us thinking about the handout. So the handout, this question, again, these, all these questions are designed to helping you nurture a vision for a gospel-centered marriage. Nurture a vision for a gospel-centered marriage. What are you most tempted to change in the other person? And I've teased out three areas, and I may be missing some, so maybe we can uh, flesh that out if I'm missing one here. Three areas where we are, we would be tempted to change the other person, sort of three broad categories. The first is um, where it's helpful that you're different. And I've listed two, personality and gifting. Why is it helpful that you have different personalities, do you think? And a lot of times, Fabi, what? You're going to kind of sharpen each other. Yeah. Iron sharpens iron, one, bro one brother sharpens another. Sanctification is going to take place to the degree that you're working on those rough edges, you're, as you've said, you're pointing out sin in one another, you're helping each other grow and develop. And usually it's in, the, it's in the world of difference that that takes place, not being exactly like the other person. A lot of times, like, uh, a lot of times, I think we innately get married thinking we want that other person to be just like us. And disappointment comes into the relationship when you wake up and you realize, I didn't marry myself. But those differences are good things. Those are good things. Personality, and then gifting. 
So in our household, we have divisional labor. Jan doesn't cut the grass, I do. I'm responsible for the cars. She actually does the checkbook. So it may be a little different than some households where it's assumed the man does the checkbook. Why should I do it? She's really good at it. So we have division of labor. And sometimes we just do joint things together. So different gift and gift, different strengths. You're a team. You're working together. Any comments or illustrations from your marriages about that? Illustrations? Well, sometimes I have to force my husband to learn or be knowledgeable about certain things that I have responsibility for. Such as? Well, you know. Ordering stuff off of Amazon. Whatever. <laughs> Whatever it is. It was the other day, I was like, don't make me do this. Don't make me do this. You do it. <laughs> well, you know, and it's even, you know, even when you get down to something like finances, right? It's important that your spouse know or understand the things you're doing or how to do basic things because they just might need to be able to have to do that. There's someone who thinks ahead, who's a planner, who anticipates, so now I know how to go into our checking account online and transfer money from our account to our daughter's account. I know how to do that now. And that's a miracle. I <laughs> agree. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Well, I, I would say at that point, too, like, I, I know some people like to try to make pharisaical rules for how couples should work, like, you know, like I've seen that in certain circles where like the man's washing the dishes. You know, it's like, that's the woman's job. But that's Christ-like leadership is sometimes to do something for the other to give them a break. And so, like, but I've seen some people who kind of make pharisaical rules, like a man is supposed to do this sort of stuff, and a woman's supposed to do this sort of stuff. And maybe it's not always that way in certain couples. Yep. Submit to one another and kind of for Christ. That's good. That's very good. I think the thing you've got to be, be careful of is if, if one of the spouse's personalities is if a job isn't getting done, I'll fill the void. You have to be careful of that. Because some of you by personality are, if, you're, if it's not getting done, somebody's got to do it, I'll do it. And maybe something should fall by the wayside. If it's that other person's responsibility and they're not doing it, you need to let it fail. So that this person learns to do that, Right? So if you're by nature the person that's going to step up and do well, okay, somebody's got to do it, I'll do it. You need maybe you need to resist that person, that, uh, that inclination. If I may counteract that, what I'm, where I'm going with this is, as you're trying to divide up, you know, the labor, if you will, you sort of want to make it fair, and it may just be that your initial assessment of that division maybe doesn't really come out as fair. So may need to reconsider it. You know, is that thing that I'm expecting that other person to do uh, that maybe is not getting done, is it possible for me to actually take on that responsibility and put it under my care because the other person just really does not have the time? Or it's like, it's not needed now. And I have sometimes a tendency to be like, look, um, at work I have this long commute, you know, and Good example. 
So the last thing I'll say about moving on to this point is there is an area, when you start to have children, there is an area where you have to be on the same page, parenting. Because if one of you is a softie and one of you is more like, like we're going to hold the line, your kids will sniff that out. And they will go to the softie and play you against each other. So you have to present a united front in your parenting strategy, especially the way you do discipline, right? So here's the kid, and dad says, okay, here are the parameters around which this thing works. And mom says, no, here are the parameters. You're going to create a lot of confusion and insecurity in the heart of the kid. You've got to present a united front in front of your kids. Even if the moment you disagree, you have to pretend like you're agreed, go into a behind a closed door, work out that agreement, but you've got to present a united front. You've got to be authentic. If, in fact, you're, you know, you're not sure about something, you can say to the kids, hold on, we're calling a timeout. We've got to talk about this. We'll get back to you. But you've got to be united in your parenting strategies, particularly discipline. Okay? I think beyond that, parenting has really challenged our personality differences because when we got married, I don't even, I don't know what I was really around as much anyway. And so we were, that was a new thing once we got married. Kat was all into every gadget possible and every social media platform. And I was like, I don't and that was fine. And the more he engaged in Twitter, the less the more I pulled back. I don't like this. I don't like this. So don't look for me on Facebook, that kind of thing. But now when we are dealing with it with our kids, it's we're finding like, okay, he can be that he can make that choice and I'm okay with him being all Mr. Social Media and I as long as I get to keep my privacy. But then when it comes to our kids, where do we get to make our joint decision and mesh our personality preferences somehow, both for what we allow them to participate in and how we portray them and talk about them. Excellent. So it forced you into a discussion. About personalities. Well, I don't think it's completed. It's ongoing. Thank you. Good. Good, Laura. Wonderful. I mean, expanding on that, I feel like kids just kind of raise the same priorities. All of these things that just used to be like differences that were easy enough between us, you know, our different styles of doing different things. Suddenly it's like, wait, you're going to teach our kids to do what? It just, it makes everything that Maybe before it was easier to, to let it just be a neutral difference. Suddenly it feels like it matters when you're influencing other human beings. Good observation, David. <laughs> Let's go to the. Uh, can, I, can I slightly disagree with you a little bit? Of course. Um, so, my parents were very much of the um, idea that you never disagreed in front of the kids. And so, they would have disagreement. You can tell they have disagreement, all of a sudden they come back and they crash with the kids. So, I appreciate that you're not disagreeing. We also need to model for kids how to handle disagreements yes. like that. Yes. If they're always disappearing and they never see that, yes. then that is a vital thing that they're missing out on, yes. is the model of how to arrive at a conclusion. Yes, excellent. I completely agree. Uh, how many of you were, and we'll get to this when we look at conflict resolution in a couple weeks. Incidentally, I'll be going the 23rd and the 30th. Uh, Nate's going to teach on the 23rd, and Rock's going to teach on the 30th. Just to let you know, I'll be here next week and then we'll be at the uh, short week. Um, when we get to conflict resolution, that's one of the points we'll make. Uh, how many of you were raised in a home where you saw conflict resolution really modeled well? Oh, wasn't that great for our marriages? I didn't see it either. I didn't see that. Hand down that. <laughs> <laughs> yep, <here. laughs> okay. I don't so. think I was aware it was getting worked out, but I never watched it. Never watched it. Yeah, I, I know 
But to see it done is really important. Otherwise, you enter a marriage going, what does this look like? And sometimes it will look messy. You know, because, and I think that's a great opportunity to show your kids we have bigger sinners than you can possibly imagine. Yeah. Because I didn't have a model. I saw a lot of conflict, not a lot of resolution. But um, I think it gave, when we disagreed, and sometimes was public, especially when we were teenagers, and uh, it gave us a chance to say, you know what? Yes, we disagree, and yet, I raised my voice because I'm the loud one, and but it's going to be okay. Nobody's going anywhere. Because we had the added uh, problem that we had adopted children, and they had they, they are insecure from the get-go. Yeah. So yeah. it was very important that, yeah, we're not going to keep it. It's all bottled up. But... It's okay, we're not going anywhere. Yeah, that's right. That's the assurance. We're not going anywhere. Very good. Right? I think there's a way to make that distinction between what you're saying is when it comes to your kids, you don't necessarily need to have a resolution about the issue related to the kids in front of them. When it comes to other things, they can witness how you do that because if they watch you make that uh, about them, about you're right. Them, they'll still know where, because you know, what you're saying is you don't want to have what you're drawing on the board, this boundary, this boundary. Mm -hmm. But if they know that you came from this and they came from that, they can still pick that board. So yeah. you know, just come back and say, yeah. But I think they're going to know regardless. Like, I, I, I teach schools, right? And then they say, who should I call? Mom said, thank you, I'm going to call dad. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. That's the point. Right. Right, let's, let's move along. Uh, second area uh, where you, as, where it's neutral that you're different. I'm thinking of Paul's word in First Corinthians, the adiaphora, the indifferent. Um, and here I put down non-essentials, the color of the carpet, do you like country music or jazz, the temperature of the car is cool or warm. Somebody, you know, a number of decades ago, I, I don't know if it was a GM or not, but they invented cars where you, the driver's side and the passenger side had different cooling. Things. You could cool the driver. You know, you know those yes, cars. Yes, I still do. We have. The, I know who invented <laughs> that. What genius invented that? How simple. Why did that take so long? Right? Because I love hot in the cold. I love hot air blowing in my face, and it drives Janice crazy. So we have to find the balance. Here. Yeah. So but I really like the guy who invented the sink button that overrides the boat. The sink button. You selfish guy. <laughs> Don't you touch the think button. So there are areas, I think, where it's just, you know, where it's neutral, and then where it's harmful that you're different. And I want to point some of those out. Deeply inbred approaches to life. One wants to be rich, the other simple. One highly relational, the other highly non-relational. Those present very steep challenges. I'll give you an example. I was doing premier's uh, counseling one time years and years ago with a couple, and he was verbal and engaged, and she was stone-faced. I mean, at one point, I finally said to her, I'm, I just can't get any read on you. I, I don't know what you're thinking. Still stone-faced. And at one point, and I don't know whether if we were talking about that, it's been so long ago, that in specific or something else, 
But he said, this is infuriating to me. She still sewed this. Now, I would think if your fiancé said something about you that was infuriating, you'd show some emotion like, so sorry, we got to deal with that. Oh my goodness, stone-faced. Now, do you think infuriating is a strong word? That's a strong, I don't know how you could say it any stronger. That was going to be a problem in that relationship. Now, I've lost track with him. I have no idea what happened to their marriage. But there are some really very, very different ways of doing life. One that was infuriating to the man. Okay? So those are the kinds of things I'm talking about there. Profoundly different worldviews. Staunchly liberal, rapidly conservative. Suppose, you know, every, every week you're going down on the sidewalk on 193 and quietly protesting the abortion clinics that's there when we drive by. We see those people, Janice prays for them and prays that the girls going in there would not get abortions, etc. Suppose you're doing that on Wednesday and your spouse is down on Capitol Hill lobbying for stronger abortion rights. I mean, that's just totally, two totally different ways of coming at life, right? Okay. Um, and then I have one here, gospel-centered living versus otherwise. What do you think I mean by gospel-centered living versus otherwise? We sort of tease this out in class, but somebody venture, what do you think I'm getting at here? Uh, well, that would be the worst, you know, a believer or an unbeliever, yes. That's un- and God doesn't want that. It's, you can only marry someone who's a believer. Okay, you all know that, right? Unequally yoked. And then the extension of unequally yoked into the relationship is one person is desperately aware of their need of the gospel, and it's the gospel is what drives our life. It's not just sort of like, here's who I am, and oh, God is part of my life over here. Or here's who I am, and yeah, Jesus is here. He's a compartment like work and play and spouse and parenting and my favorite TV shows, and Jesus is one of those. No, this is a person who Jesus is absolutely everything. You're never going to get away from the cross, ever. You're constantly drawn like a magnet to the cross, living that way or otherwise. That's something answering my own question. That makes sense? Well, can that also be the circumstance of someone who marries and then becomes a believer with a spouse that's an unbeliever. And yeah. that's obviously a large challenge. Yeah. And you've probably seen that. Two people get married, one becomes a believer, and that's a huge challenge. Can you have some sympathy for the unbeliever in that situation? Sure. Like, whoa, 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 what just happened? I didn't sign up for that. I married my, my, uh, my skeptical unbelief. I married you because you didn't believe in God. And now you're all this Jesus stuff? Can you have some sympathy for that person? That's a radical change, yeah. So it's incumbent upon the way that Christian lives before their unbelieving spouse. That's what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 3. A believing wife living before an unbelieving husband in such a way that without a word, the conduct alone, this person is one to the gospel. This is very important. A good thing to be aware of. Anything else you want to say about that? David? I think they're also kind of just expanding on other levels of defining even more specifically what that gospel center really looks like. Please. Kind of also in the direction of the one before it, liberal versus conservative, and maybe elements of, you know, uh, even, like, very specifically the type of things that you're looking for in the local church, and the type of, you know, the way in which 
which the gospel is lived out and is the center of your household. Um, you know, to, to things like are we baptizing our infants or not can can become a huge divide over your life as you're you know, for us we had the experience when we first got married, uh, we moved and so suddenly one of the first things that we were doing was looking for a church to have and, and that and if you have deep divides there, then that can be a real challenge. It can be. Yes. Um, I've been in situations where one of the couples was reformed, just self-consciously a, a ardent belief in sovereign grace. The other wasn't. Those are two really different theological worldviews, aren't they? I mean, if you begin to... Have you ever read J.I. Packer's essay at the, at the, that's printed at the, in, in uh, uh, John Owen's reprint of The Death of Death and the Death of Christ? There's an essay at the beginning of that book by uh, J.I. Packer. Anybody familiar with it? I mean, I'm, Packers usually writes with a very ironic spirit. In this essay, he, he absolutely blasts the God of Arminianism. He, bla- he says it's a completely different God than the God of the Bible. He just, you know. So, all that to say, um, as David is saying, these are some very different views of who God is and what God can do and what, you know, what God is. The exercise of God's power. So, I think we can't say still fall within two believers. There are still deep divides even within that at times. Say what, David? Um, divides within being married to another Christian. Yeah. Still yeah. Different understandings, particularly of how that's lived out in your family life. Yeah. Are we going to baptize our kids? How are we going to raise our kids? That's another question that's pretty important. Do we want to raise them homeschooling, public schools, Christian schools, some combination thereof? Those are really good issues to talk about ahead of time to save yourself the uh, heartburn. That's my alarm. Thank you. It's just 10 minutes to go. Yes, I think um, it's really good for us to know all the knowledge about that, but we really need to read the Bible and a lot of it every day because that's when his truths and you know, the beauty of the world we can get swept away with is filtered through truth. And, that, and we're reminded of these things from God's mouth. And I just really feel like it really makes it stick. And Good. as much as you can read God's word, you really need to just make more into it. Good. So, what's the difference between a person who has all their theological categories neatly defined? They confess an A, they can give you an A test on Reformed theology and Covenant theology. That person, and yet there's no daily interaction with the Word of God. What's the difference between those two people? I think that's what Gail's asking. One's religion, one's faith. What? One is religion, one is faith. One could, could be religion, and the more you're in the scriptures, what are you confronted with? Sin. Your sin, who God is, how beautiful Jesus is. Now, our theology, the beauty of Reformed theology, is you, you should be getting that, but a lot of people, they just love theology for theology's sake, but it's designed to make you a worshiper. Worship is what changes you. Worship is what humbles you. You want to be there waking up every morning, throwing your feet on the ground next to a person who is desperate to find their sense of being in the God of glory, and they're going to his word, being washed in the word, reading the word, humbled by the word, energized by the word, and being satisfied with Jesus, which really which really leads us to the last couple here under where it's harmful that you're different. Uh, are you a person with a commitment to serve the other, to promote their welfare, if even in the face of their worst? Are you committed to seek and love Jesus first above all else? Um, because if you're not seeking Jesus first, you will seek something 
to satisfy the hole in your heart that was meant to be filled with Jesus. And you might make that person that, and therefore put them on a pedestal or demand things of them that they have no ability to give you. Okay? And the last thing I have there is a willingness to be vulnerable, to ask the other person into your mess, and a calling to go into theirs. Basically, when you're thanking vows at the altar, you're saying, of all the sinners in the world, you're the one I want in my mess. Of all the sinners in the world, you're the one I call by Jesus to go into. And you're just going to discover how deep and uh, uh, vast that person's brokenness is. But if you're a person who has no interest on that journey and your spouse does, that is not a match made in heaven. That's going to be a disaster. Okay? In other words, are you first focused on Jesus changing you versus Jesus changing your spouse to suit you? Here's the truth. You'll never be happily married to another person until you're first happily married to Jesus. People are often miserable because they are not first satisfied with Jesus' love. We've really seen that all already along in the class. What are you doing in your life to be deeply satisfied in the love of Jesus for you on a regular basis? And what's the nature of that love? It is bouncing. Wherever it goes, it not only satisfies the soul that it's in, but it tends to splash out on others. It's bouncy, the nature of grace. It isn't just for you. It's, grace isn't just for me to feel better about how much Jesus loves me. It's grace when it changes me and makes me secure in the love of Jesus for me. So now I take the risk in loving, the risk in giving. I can self-sacrifice for the other person because I've been near that instrument of ultimate sacrifice, the cross. You want to live with somebody who's never, ever far from the cross. And you'll know it. You'll see it. And when your spouse is drifting from that place, what do we do? We gently come alongside and say, Honey, how can I help you get to that place of great love and compassion and mercy? How can I help you get back close to the cross? That's a healthy relationship. No one's ever going to be there perfectly, but we're in this together, helping each other stay at that one spot. Right here? I think that's the point where you can actually tell whether or not you sort of have the same view is that when the other spouse is coming along to encourage you, you respond to it in a favorable way as opposed to in a defensive way. Yes. Um, because if you're not on the same moral view or just pretending to be, you know, you all of a sudden start to get resistance Good. So that's a good word, defensive. When are you most likely to be defensive? When you spend time with Jesus or not? Not. not. <laughs> right. If you spend time with Jesus, <laughs> how can anybody else's criticism ultimately be anything, right? You've been with the Lord of glory. He's shown you that you're a rebel, that you're selfish that you're proud, that you don't love him, that you're not intoxicating with his love. You show them that you have a relative, in, relative indifference to the glory of God, and yet he loves you. So now there's nothing my wife can say that's going to slaughter me. I've been with God, and he still loves me. See how it works? Okay, so do you believe your differences are an asset, and do you expect your idols to collide? So just a couple minutes on that. What's an idol? An idol is where you say... Life is only worth living if I have. 
And there's a whole lot of different ways to fill in the blank. Here's some that typically provide. Some people like life orderly, predictable. You probably are going to end up marrying a person that's the opposite end of that continuum. That's a slop. That's spontaneous. Or that doesn't care about planning or predictions at all. Right? People are smiling because you see this in your relationships, right? It's, so part of this is that's just the way you're wired in the womb. Part of it is sin distorts the way you're wired into a not-so-good thing. But, but God's got you in this relationship so that you're, you're, you're looking in the mirror and seeing these idols. Somebody uh, deeply needs to be respected or admired or approved of. That person probably is married to somebody who really doesn't care a lot what other people think of them. They don't care. They have other needs and concerns and demands. They don't care what people think of them. This person cares way too much. This person maybe has a healthy view of that or doesn't care at all. You can expect those idols are going to clash. What's God's design in this? This person needs to what? Grow. Change. Be sanctified. Be putting these idols to death with the assistance of someone who can come alongside and help them and love them and pray with them and patiently wait while God's work of sanctification is being done. But why can't this person condemn this person? They have their own idols. (laughs) One. Right? Just different idols. So the, the image Jesus uses to make this really, really healthy is he says, here's your eye. What do you know about your eye? What's it got in it? Matthew 7, what's it got in it? Big logs. And here's your spouse's eye. There's a couple specks over here. Right? We have this uncanny ability to see past our logs into the specks of our spouse. And Jesus said, if you really want to help your spouse with their specks, you need to first deal with your own logs. That's healthy. That's a healthy marriage. My logs are greater than your specks. That's the way I'm going to start the day. Therefore, am I going to be shocked or dismayed or condemn my spouse to their specks? How could I? I have all these logs that send Jesus to the cross. Again, you've got to, those logs have to send you to Jesus. If you think there's a way to deal with your logs apart from Jesus, that will make you demanding, critical, a very difficult person to live with. This person will feel like they're walking on eggshells around you. Because it's all about performance. And if you're succeeding, you will become a self-righteous Pharisee in the way you relate to your spouse. If you're failing, you'll become glum, despairing, and be a very unhappy person to live with. But the cross doesn't make you either of those. Use your joy. Peace, confidence, patience, compassion, love, accept. Does that make sense? All right, next week we'll start conflict resolution, and we'll be uh, heading to winding down our class together. Let's pray. Father, as a congregation, we're hurting um, over just loss, passing, and so we pray in this next hour and a half together that you will show up in a wonderful and powerful way and um, comfort your people, show them the hope of resurrection, use everything that we do together in our worship service, not least uh, the preaching of your word out of my mouth. Use it, Lord Jesus, to shepherd your people, to love them, to comfort them, to help them, to fill them with resurrection, hope, and glory. We commit it to you, our marriages, our relationships, 
asking you to be glorified in them, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.